welcome back once more and today is going to be another instagram q a episode this is the third one that i've done so this one is going to be compiling some very recent questions that i got with some much older ones so it's going to be a little bit all over the shop in terms of timeline but questions are all general training fitness world related stuff um, if you ever do have a question that you'd like to have answered on one of these, you can send it to me on Instagram, you can just DM me, um, or there is also a, a question thing on Spotify where you can pop it in there. Make sure if you enjoy the podcast to give it a rating on Spotify, and feel free to share with anybody who you think might enjoy it. Okay, so... To kick us off, the first question that we're going to take a look at is from Patrick. And Patrick says, do you know coaches who are in love with IR exercises? Now, I actually had to follow up with Patrick on this because I didn't know if he meant internal rotation. And he did. And so this is one of these things that I suppose the perks of keeping myself in a bubble of good training information on social media means that I don't have to see silly stuff but then the con is that I'm actually quite removed from whatever is uh, in the mainstream at the moment and I guess a fixation on internal rotation exercises must be a thing at the moment. I think this is a good example of why if you've listened to previous episodes, you've probably heard me preach the importance of principles over and over again now. And it's so important to, to keep principles at the front of your mind when you're making training decisions, because otherwise you end up doing stuff like this, where you come across something that's maybe marketed to you in a savvy way. Maybe there's a course on internal rotation or something. And you can just get hoodwinked into thinking that you found a panacea, you know, a magic pill that's going to solve all of your issues with training. You're going to have better squat mobility, so you'll lift more weight. You'll never have any knee or back pain ever again. You're going to unlock more ranges of motion that allow you to gain more muscle. Um, it's just extremely unlikely that any one thing like that is going to be a, that beneficial, and B, even relevant for absolutely everybody. There probably are some people who've got really poor internal rotation, and that may or may not be something that would be useful for them to work on, depending on their goals. But the, the short answer to your question is, no, I don't know any coaches who do that because... I try to only associate myself with people that I believe are good coaches, like the people that I've had on the podcast. And I think anytime you see somebody who's become super attached to some new trendy thing, it's just a massive red flag that they have maybe a lack of experience or perspective for training as training history. Um, and if you look back through the decades, there has been a multitude of things like this that have come and gone, both in, in training and nutrition or fitness-related products. There's always something new that comes along 
that claims to be different from everything else. Like this is the one that's going to do it for everybody. Whether that was an exercise method like kettlebells. I wasn't in the fitness industry at that point, but supposedly when kettlebells came on the scene, huge swathes of people who had been using basic strength training exercises for years, tried and tested stuff like rows, pushing, squatting, pulling, deadlifting, um, just abandoned all that stuff to just have everybody swing a kettlebell around. And I don't mind kettlebells, but there's obviously limitations with them. Um, whereas if you're grounded in principles, when a new thing comes along, you can assess it with the critical eye. You can see, is it beneficial? Kind of like that Bruce Lee thing of absorb what's useful, discard what's not. And, you know, how can I fit it into my program if it is beneficial? Or how can I, who are the people that it needs to be uh, given to? Dropping everything that has worked for over a hundred years now in strength and conditioning, it's very unlikely that that is going to be the smart move to make when a new thing comes along. So uh, that is my elaborate answer to internal rotation exercises. Um, not something that I think about. I'm more interested in doing stuff that I'm very, very sure works and has worked for a long time. Okay, the next question is from Frank. He asks, would you worry too much about training periodization when working with someone trying to lose weight? Well, obviously, I'd endeavor to never worry too much about anything, but I know what you're asking here. So basically, how much emphasis do I place on training periodization when working with someone trying to lose weight? And the answer to that is little or none. Um, training periodization really isn't something that I utilize with really probably 90% plus of my clients. It's not something that I would consider. Reason being because they're either beginners or much closer to beginners than say intermediates or whatever terminology you want to use there. The, the great thing about somebody being a beginner is you don't need to structure training into specific blocks that are working on different traits because the the superpower of a beginner is they can get stronger, they can gain muscle, they can um, improve their cardiovascular fitness, they can improve their muscular power, they can drop body fat, do all of those things simultaneously without having to make things any more complicated than just showing up to the gym, doing the basic exercises progressively, and trying to do a good job outside the gym on uh, diet and sleep. And so if somebody is coming into me trying to lose weight, really, I think this is an example of how coaches, the education system kind of fails us a little bit when we go into working with the general population, because obviously if you've gotten, say a bachelor's degree, it's, it's a science degree, and they're going to teach you a lot about the theory. And when it comes to training, they're going to go in depth on things like periodization and all the different models and the difference between developing explosive strength and maximal strength. And what nobody tells you is that probably unless you're training 
not even elite athletes, but probably only like elite strength level athletes or elite strength athletes, like say bodybuilders or maybe athletes who compete in very uh, strength driven sports like track and field. Um, you're never going to use any of that stuff or you're never going to have to use any of that stuff to get somebody to their goals. And nine times out of 10, it's actually not going to be helpful at all and probably a distraction from the most important things to be working on with somebody. If we look at the problem of somebody who's overweight, their issue is not that they're not following a, a block training system where they've got a hypertrophy block first and then they do uh, strength training after, for example. That's not what's causing their issues. Their issues are that they probably have terrible food habits built up over a lifetime where there's been maybe little or no education around basic things like what calories are in certain foods, how to cook, etc. Uh, they probably have an unhealthy relationship with utilizing food as a stress reliever. And they just don't do any form of exercise consistently whatsoever. So if I'm taking on somebody who's overweight, my big thing is how can we immediately make a small but meaningful change to your nutrition habits? That's not going to be something super complicated like you have to start tracking calories. Something like, okay, we're going to replace all of your soda type drinks with diet soda drinks. And that can immediately slash their calories by quite a bit. Or how can I give you an exercise program that you're going to enjoy somewhat, is going to create some self-efficacy and that you'll be able to sustain for months at a time, not a few weeks. That's the stuff that we as coaches need to be focusing on when it comes to helping someone who's general population and has a goal like trying to lose body fat. Periodization is so far down the totem pole there that it's really not even worth talking about. And as I've said, even for people who aren't trying to lose weight and they are trying to gain, let's say, body mass in the form of muscle, they don't need to periodize things. They just do the basic strength exercises, try to get strong on them in like a moderate to high rep range. And uh, like say, you know, like six to 12 reps and then eat more food and they gain muscle. You know, it doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. And it's really only when you get to the point where you, you have to have a dedicated phase of focusing on muscle to get a significant return on that investment that you would break things into blocks. And that's very, very few people of the training population that actually applies to. Next question from uh, Robert, I believe his name is, what was the last thing you changed your opinion on? This is a great question and it's one that I've asked uh, a few of the guests on the podcast before because I think for people who are very grounded in principles, to change your mind on something in any kind of significant way really actually means quite a lot. If you have no principles and you've changed your mind on something, that doesn't mean anything because you might have just, you know, seen a new method that looked flashy or whatever and you've jumped ship over to that. But when you've been doing things with a very firm grounding 
in a, your own you know coaching philosophy and sound principles for a long time and then change something um even a small change you know that that means that something quite significant has happened like in your observations anyway uh enough with the shouting on for me that would be probably realizing that people or the people that i train don't really need to do the the main lift that they're focusing on getting stronger and quite as often as i would have thought um so basically the way that i i had been structuring things was that you know if somebody trained three days a week then they would have a, a setup where it would be like a squat on a Monday, Friday, deadlift Wednesday, and then the benching and the pressing would alternate each session so that you're you're getting some work on, uh, you get a decent amount of work on your, on your main lift you're trying to improve on each week. And I still think that that can work great, but something that I've found works really well for the time constraints of an hour that I have with coaching people is to actually just have one main lift. So that alternates between upper and lower body each day. Um, and then pairing, supersetting that in, or maybe tri setting would be the right term, uh, with exercises that are very similar to the main lifts, but require a lot less time setting up and warming up on, and are just easier to kind of pair in in terms of equipment. So the easiest example of that would be, say, the dumbbell bench press. So even though it may technically be about a week between some of my clients training the barbell bench press, um, they will, in the interim, have done a dumbbell bench or a dumbbell incline bench and progressed on that. And that has actually been perfectly sufficient for allowing them to continue adding to their barbell bench when they come back around to it. And the big one for me, which I guess is probably the, the second part to this, is something I've changed my mind on recently, has been the goblet squat. Because back squats in particular really pose quite, quite a challenge in terms of working them into a session if there's any other lift in there, because I find that you need to warm up on them quite a bit. Most people can't really get into a good position on their squats until there's a bit of weight on the bar and, you know, you've got to set up a rack and it just takes quite a bit of time of warming up, I find. Whereas a goblet squat, you just pick up a dumbbell and start going and people tend to get into a good position pretty quickly. And so I've been surprised to find how much carryover the goblet squat is having, even on my people who are squatting, you know, body weight for reps. Um, doing goblet squats with 30, 40 kilos or more, even though the upper back is quite a bit of a limiting factor, I actually haven't really seen that as a negative because getting a strong upper back, no doubt, helps with your back squats. And there's still enough of a stimulus to the legs that I'm finding people get stronger um, by training the goblet squats the most often i pretty much have the goblet squat in there every session there has been some sessions where i've subbed in a walking lunge with dumbbells or a split squat but i don't think you could get away with 
doing that too much so you probably still have to have a free weight squatting exercise in there at least twice a week to keep on driving the barbell squat up so those would be the two big things i've changed my mind on that are kind of related basically changing the structure of the session to just have one main lift and i found it actually allows you to get more overall work in then because you've got more time for the assistance stuff and there's less rest between sets and also just how valuable the goblet squat is for increasing people's lower body strength and carrying over to the barbell squat next one then is from ryan i think that's his first name uh why is squat you stronger than us uh is he i'm not really aware of how strong aaron from squat you is or isn't i suppose it's not really ever been something that i've been all that concerned with as it's really his messaging that's the the main issue but i don't know what he lifts i think i might have seen video of him squatting maybe somewhere around like 160 or more in kilos and he looks like he maybe weighs around 80 maybe so i mean he's certainly not weak um having said that you know even if he was squatting 300 kilos there it doesn't necessarily improve the messaging you know there's there's plenty of big strong people that i've seen on instagram that might have some decent training information about like the basics of how to get strong but the stuff that they're putting up about pain mobility etc uh, is just not accurate at all so uh, yeah i don't know what does he bench that's the main thing what is squat use max bench press and max curl because realistically nobody cares about anything else okay getting into some older ones now um these ones i don't have the names for unfortunately because instagram uh, deletes them after a while this one that says heard i'm a puss for doing smith machine squats true uh look the swift the smith machine is an interesting one it, the industry opinion on it has changed a lot over the last 20 years like when it first came out it was definitely reviled because i think that was the beginning of free weights starting to become the main tool um took a little bit longer in ireland but certainly in america and the uk that was kind of the beginning of a big push i think for more free weights and gyms it's limited in some respects in that obviously the bar is on its it's, it's stuck in a, a fixed path. And certainly if you think that getting in any way stronger on the Smith machine squat is going to carry over to the barbell squat, well, you can try that experiment for yourself. But I think anybody who's tried that, um, as with trying to get strong in any machine and then transfer that over to a free weight exercise has found that doesn't tend to work out as well as you think it would. I will also say that the Smith machine poses a unique risk that the barbell squat does not because, uh, now, sorry, this can happen with a barbell. The main factor is if you're using a bench, but the Smith machine is particularly dangerous because it can't roll anywhere. It's locked in a specific path. So I've seen some horrendous videos 
Uh, one I kind of wish I hadn't seen was one where a woman actually died afterwards. Where essentially you set up on the Smith machine to do a squat, but you're doing like a box squat to a bench that's positioned underneath the bar. And, you know, for anybody who knows what they're doing, you shouldn't really end up with so much weight on the bar that, you know, even if you get glued to the bench, you should be able to still have the back strength to be able to just essentially let go of the bar and hop forward and have a crash down. The problem is, obviously, not everybody is aware of what smart weight selections are, um, or they have a coach who's terrible, and you load far too much weight on the bar to the point where not only can your legs not actually squat it up, but your back actually can't support it. And then you get dumped forward, essentially turning this into kind of like a guillotine type effect where your head is now going to get trapped between the bench and the bar. And sadly, this actually happened with even a, a barbell squat to a bodybuilder recently. Um, although uh, there was no bench involved, but again, just far too much weight on the bar. His whole back just collapsed forward and bar rolled onto his head. Now, I'm always remiss to mention these things because I'm aware that there's some people listening who probably aren't massively experienced in strength training, might only be starting off, maybe haven't started at all yet, and you're kind of on the fence. And I really have to stress that this is not something that is ever a risk of happening for anybody who has even like 20% of an idea of how to load a barbell intelligently. To, to load a bar so heavy that you would not even be able to maintain any kind of back tension whatsoever as you're going down and you would just flop forward. You're, you're just, you'd have no idea what you're doing with loading weight on the bar. And I'm not going to speak to say that guy's, uh, I don't, I don't want to speak about any kind of specific case because it's very sad when any, anybody dies. You don't know what the, um, you don't know what the details were of like how that ended up happening. Was it a coach? Was it their decision? We don't know. But the Smith machine, I think in particular can be quite dangerous for people who don't know what they're doing just because you are, st it's the only one where you're stuck between the floor and the waist. Um, and depending on the Smith machine, there might not be a great safety lock mechanism uh, to, to save you if you, put stupid weight on there and it comes crashing down more than likely you know people are going to come rushing over immediately and pull the thing off you when they see but at least with a bar you can maneuver yourself into some kind of a position where it just rolls off you or if you fail a bench you can do the roll of shame and sit up um so are you a pussy for doing the smith machine squats ah uh, yeah you are do some back squats uh i'm only kind of messing there okay next one Ever wish you had a different job? I think everybody, after you've been doing something for a while, you know, you become aware that there are aspects of it that you weren't aware of before you got into it that you probably don't like as much as you thought you would. Um, you know, for me, that would be basically any part of my job that isn't related to coaching. I quite enjoy like writing and I obviously enjoy doing the podcast because I've, I've always enjoyed creative outlets 
but anything to do with numbers, doing my taxes, um, you know, putting together marketing stuff with sales copy and things like that. And I've never enjoyed that stuff. I was always horrendous at doing sales and any say cafe or restaurant jobs I ever worked in. Um, I was just brutally honest with people, you know, and I can remember even working in, uh, a frozen yogurt place before where the guy, the guy kind of wanted me to like fib to people about there being agave in the frozen yogurt when people ask like does it have sugar in it of course there's sugar within agave uh which i knew because i'd already begun studying nutrition at that point and um you know he was happy enough to not mention that part to them whereas i just wasn't so if somebody asked me does it have sugar in there i'd say well, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not table sugar, but there's sugar in the agave. It's a, it's a fucking dessert. Like, what are you expecting? It's not gonna taste that good for uh, no amount of extra calories. And probably did lose the odd person who came up and wanted to delude themselves into thinking this agave is totally different. But uh, anyway, <laughs> I've gone very off track here. Overall, I absolutely love my job when I think about all the, all the other things that I could be doing, this is the thing that is most meaningful to me. And I think that when all is said and done, looking back, I can be extremely proud of the fact that I worked in an area that has a direct positive effect on people's lives. I know everybody has to, to make a living somehow, but there's a lot of jobs out there that maybe either aren't having any kind of a positive effect on people or having a, an outright negative effect on the world. Like say, if you, I don't know, work for some oil company or a cigarette company or something like that. But to be able to work in an area where I can see people's mental and physical condition improve give them tools to be able to make exercise a lifelong thing and and just seeing the effect that it had on me as a teenager transferred over to other people um, is extremely rewarding so I love my job overall if you're ever thinking of becoming a coach you do have to be aware that it's not just I get to hang around the gym all day long and train in between clients and shoot the shit with other coaches you're not going to have very many clients or last very long in the industry if that's what you're spending your time doing. Unfortunately, a huge amount of the time is trying to keep getting new people in the door, particularly if you're doing the style of training that I do with people, which just isn't very marketable because I'm telling people the truth. I'm telling people that there's sugar in the agave or, you know, in our terms, this is hard and you have to find out a way to make it a lifelong sustainable thing and that's probably not doing a juice cleanse and training six days a week for six weeks and then giving up until January rolls around again. Like that's that's not how I'm going to do it with people and the trade-off for that is there's just going to be less interest but the positive of it is that I get to, you know, be happy with myself and I can sleep at night knowing that I'm doing a good job and um, so overall I think
of all the jobs that you can do in the world, being uh, a coach or a personal trainer, whatever you want to tell us, is definitely definitely one of the the more rewarding ones out there. Okay, coming towards the end, just going to do a few more and then we'll wrap it up. Um, my left knee sounds like shoveling gravel when I lower into a squat. And then the end of that one is, is cut off. I can't read it anymore, but I think it said something like it's a time for a trip to the physio. Uh, this is something that's not discussed enough in the fitness industry. And I find it surprising because almost every single person that I train has these joint noises and at some point becomes a little bit concerned about them, understandingly. But there's just not much information put out about them. And I think it's probably just because of a lack of a lack of actual understanding about exactly, you know, what these noises are or what they mean. Um, the the leading theory, and I think this may have actually been demonstrated in, in research, don't quote me on that, but I, I can vaguely remember reading something about this before. Um, in the same way, when you crack your knuckles, you can get those like bubble wrap type sounds. Um, you have bubbles that basically build up within the synovial fluid that uh, lubricates your joints and when you move your joints these bubbles pop and they make noises and for some reason some people and some of their joints in particular make a lot of noise and for other people they have joints that make little or no noise and what's also interesting is that it's not necessarily related to any kind of issue whatsoever in terms of actual joint degradation. And certainly if there's no pain attached with this, my personal take on it is just don't worry about it because I have these cracks all over my body. They don't line up with you know, areas where I get pain. In fact, if you take me for an example, I've had a lot of issues with my right shoulder but it doesn't make any clicking noises. My left one clicks a lot, and that's my healthy shoulder that I've never really had any issues with whatsoever. Um, I've had clients whose knees click a lot. Like I trained one girl before who basically, ha she had to do like, I'd say all of her warm-up sets on squats, and then it would only be by about the last working set that the pops would either be gone or quite minimal but the first few sets like when she started on bodyweight squats it was like somebody was rolling a tractor over an industrial size sheet of bubble wrap like it was ridiculously loud noises coming out of her knees to the point where i almost thought hmm is there an issue here but the experience for most people is there's no pain and if you move enough after a while it just stops so I'm never going to tell anybody not to get something looked at because, you know, I'm not going to make myself liable for giving medical advice. But the prevailing thought on this stuff from people who are much more learned in the ways of movement and um, medical sciences than me would say that this just isn't something you really need to worry about unless it's accompanied by pain. If it's accompanied by pain, then... Uh, the, the party line tends to be go and get a check out. Next one, what is the easiest way to get the bench to go up? Look, I'm, 
I'm going to be straight up and say it's to bench press more and to eat and sleep more with a big emphasis on the eating part. I have coached a lot of people now, pretty much all of them do the bench press or have done the bench press and consistently the only thing that I have seen that's been almost universal when somebody's bench press goes up and they're not an absolute beginner is that they have gained muscle mass. Maybe your body weight hasn't changed by a lot because when you're still in that like beginner to intermediate phase of training, I do think that you can drop body fat and gain muscle at the same time and your body weight ends up kind of staying the same. But I guarantee that if your bench press has gone up significantly, like if you've gone from benching 70 kilos to 80 kilos, I can almost guarantee that you've gained muscle. I've seen this pretty much every time. In particular, if you've gone up in like what you can do for your working sets of say five reps, you, you could probably improve your one rep max just by starting to practice heavy bench presses a lot more. But you would very quickly find that the effects you get from that wear out pretty quickly because you just you can only make the muscle mass that you have available so efficient before you just need bigger muscles. So for pretty much everybody who isn't a beginner, I would recommend bench pressing twice a week. Um, eventually, you know, for me, the next time I'm making a big push to get my bench press up, I'm going to do three times a week. Um, but at least twice a week is a good place to start from to guarantee you're getting a decent stimulus uh, where the training is concerned. And then you have got to be eating boatloads of protein and probably need to have yourself in a bit of a calorie surplus as well. You should be getting stronger on your assistance lifts like dips, dumbbell work, etc. And that's going to help build the muscle then the bench press goes up. I, I really think bench press is not... Getting your bench press to go up, just it's not that complicated, but the majority of people, they just have this weird fixation on lean gains. Get as strong as possible without putting on any body weight. Uh, it's just it's not realistic, unfortunately. You know, when I was dropping body weight, uh, I dropped uh, about... 12 kilos or so and I just made peace with the fact that my bench was going to go to shit. Now I'm now in a position where actually pretty soon I will be technically stronger relative to my body weight on the bench than I used to be even though the absolute weight is less so you can take solace in that but as you get stronger you just have to accept that for the upper body lifts in particular you're probably not hitting any significant PRs with a, uh, a, a dedicated attempt to put on muscle with a big part of that coming from improved diet. Okay, final question. When doing submaximal training for strength, what RPE do you use? It's a good question. Um, for the most part, and this is obviously based on my subjective assessment of the RPE scale, I like to see people basically shooting for about seven to eight, eight and a half 
for the majority of their sets on the main lift. So the, the big heavy stuff like squats, benches, deadlifts, presses. I do not like to see that venturing up to an RPE 9 or above for an extended period of time. I find once you cross that threshold where the reps are pretty grindy and slow, it's, it's a sure sign that a plateau is about to come. Now, or maybe not so much a plateau, but at least a, a drop in, in the loads that you'll be able to handle for a while. Now, that's not a, a big deal if, say, for example, you're going to test uh, a max. So obviously, if you're going to go for, let's say, a new three rep max on your overhead press, that needs to be an RPE 9 or 10 out of 10, probably, for you to be you know, sufficiently exerting yourself to be able to to hit that performance level that would allow you to break your old record. But that is not necessary to make progress over multiple weeks on your your submaximal work on the, the overhead press, the stuff that's going to lay the foundation for setting that new three rep max. So submaximal means not just that the weight is lighter, but that the RPE is at an appropriate level and this is something that really takes a long time for people to accept i still fuck it up sometimes and get carried away if a a certain song i really like comes on when i'm training or if i'm training with a friend or something and i start getting a bit too competitive and look it's not a huge deal if it just happens every now and then but i can guarantee you that if you are going in week in and week out and pushing things to RP9, RP10 on squats, benches, deadlifts, presses, I do believe that you're at best shortchanging your, your progress because you know, you're going to get fatigued and you're going to have to drop the weight eventually, probably within about two or three weeks. Uh, and at worst, you may be increasing your chance of getting hurt because anytime we're pushing things up to that level of intensity, we're going to be flirting with loads that we're not 100% sure our body can handle. It's okay to do that on a max attempt because, you know, we only do those every now and then after we've built a, a loss of strength and conditioning within our body. But to just be hammering yourself all the time like that, I don't think is a good approach and something that wendler jim wendler said on a podcast recently that really stuck with me is that one of the major issues with strength trainees is that we're all in a rush to hit a plateau for some reason we're all rushing to get to a weight where things get really challenging and now we have to start problem solving about how we're going to get through this this plateau Whereas the, the longer you can extend the time before that happens, the stronger you're going to be by the time you get there. If you, if you try to plateau within three weeks, you could be shortchanging yourself by a few kilos on the bar. That if you were just a little bit more patient and allowed yourself to take six or eight weeks of progress, that's at a more steady conservative pace as opposed to three weeks balls to the wall, that could be the difference between, you know, plateauing your sets of five on the overhead press at 55 kilos as opposed to 47. So you have to, I think the, the, the easiest rule of thumb for this is you got to finish every single training session confident 
that the next time you come back in, you can at minimum match what you just did and ideally progress it on in some way. Even if it's just an extra set or an extra few reps or putting on micro plates or something like that. You, you got to be confident that you can do more or match that without it being this crazy challenge in your head that, you know, if you get one night of poor sleep, you're fucked. Or if you just get slightly too few calories that day, you're just not going to have what it takes to get that last rep. We need more wiggle room than that because we're not elite athletes. Um, so anyway, that concludes the Q&A for today. As I said, if you want any questions of your own answered in future, this will be uh, a regular segment that I'll do uh, every few episodes. So feel free to send them on. And until next time.